Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast from Lobby Capital. In this podcast, we explore the people we back, the people we work with, and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship. Recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs, but instead a combination of past experiences, relationships, serendipity, and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. Welcome to The Fabric. We're here today with Frank Rode. I'm Buddy Arnheim, your host. Frank, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a fantastic conversation. Frank has had an amazing career and we're going to get to that. Right now he's working on a new startup that was launched about a year ago. The code name is Stealth. By the time this podcast gets published, I think we'll be out of stealth. So the name of the business is? Onify. Onify. And give us the tagline for Onify. Onify, helping first-time homebuyers get into their first house. Huge problem and amazing solution. We're looking forward to digging into that. But before we get to that, Frank, we're going to sort of take the way back clock to sort of your childhood because you've had an amazing upbringing. I mean, really unique. Of all the folks we've interviewed, this is probably one of the most unique backgrounds. So if you don't mind indulging me, we're going to go way back. So you were born in Germany and tell us a little bit about your upbringing in the first handful of years. Got it. All right. Yeah, way back when in the 70s, I was born in a town called Sigberg in what was then West Germany. First child, my parents were musicians. My mom played the piano, my dad played the violin and the saxophone. Grew up and uh, you know had a younger sister who was two years younger than me, who also is now a musician. So very quickly became apparent that I wasn't the musician. I was <laughs> kind of like the black sheep in the family. I picked up the violin, I learned, I played, and then my sister picked up the violin and was better than me in a couple of weeks. And were your parents professional violinists? Was that yeah. their career? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Were they, so they play in the symphony or my dad played in an orchestra. Okay. Uh, my mom taught piano, and my dad also taught violin for his entire life. So music ran in my family, still does. But yeah, that was a big part of growing up. I, I bet remember, it was. You know, just, and was the violin the instrument of choice for you? Or was it, hey, dad teaches and he's a professional violinist? Dad teaches, he's a professional. I started with the violin and then I wasn't that great at it. And I picked up the piano and I wasn't that great at it. And then I picked up the <laughs> flute and I wasn't that great at it. And so eventually I was like, all right, I will do something different. Great. Um, and I think early on became somewhat competitive. And my sister, who was younger, was better than me. And I said, you know, this is your thing. I'm going to find something that that I can be good at. And is she a professional? Is that She's a professional, yeah. yeah. She plays in the Saarland Symphony Orchestra as a violinist. So here you are. And is it a small town? Is it a big town? Small town, really a suburb of Bonn, Cologne, okay. you know, 35,000 people. Yep. Very, very much a sheltered and happy and, you know, classic middle class German small town upbringing. What's amazing is I barely hear a German accent and... Yet you grew up, your childhood was spent in Germany. Was, did your parents speak English? Was there any? No, um, I think actually it has to do with growing up in a household of musicians. Mm. One of the things that my parents were always very focused on was listen to the sound, replicate the sound. If you think about a violin, yeah. like violin doesn't have any frets or any right. notes. You have to hit the note by listening and replicating. And so listening, replicating was part of like how we grew up. 
And I remember my dad, you know, saying, "Oh no, that's too high. That's too low." And you're like, "Oh yeah." And now that you think about it, so maybe that helped with the language and picking up English when I came to the U.S. Right? I really focus on let, let me understand how people speak and, and kind of replicate. And how old were you when you moved to the U.S.? And what was the catalyst? So the catalyst was I went to New York with my mom when I was nine. That was early '80s, and was really impressed and just mm-hmm. wow, amazing city. And that kind of put the bug in my head of I want to come back to the U.S. at some point. There was always this kind of background fascination with the U.S. and saying, hey, I want to go, you know, live there or at least visit. So when I was ending 11th grade, you know, junior year, basically signed up to spend senior year 12th grade in the U.S. And so I signed up for this exchange program called Pacific Intercultural Exchange. This is all letters, right? Pre-internet. Got a letter back from this family saying, you know, we live in Willow Creek, California. And I said, oh, that's great. Let me go get my, you know, Rand McNally. (laughs) Where is Willow Creek? Creek? Well, couldn't find it. Do you know where Willow Creek is? I do not. Exactly. No one. (laughs) It's between Eureka and Redding. So, you know, we are in California and we say, hey, Northern California, we're in the Bay Area. That's not Northern California. No, that That is is Northern Northern California. California. It's way up there. Wow. So I got the letter with the address and we booked a flight and I flew into San Francisco and then I took this little plane to Arcata McKinleyville and the family picked me up there and we drive for an hour and a half. And this is the first time you've been in California. First time in California. Second time in the United States. Yep. Yep. Wow. So we get to this little town called Willow Creek, which has 900 people in it. And I said, oh, this is cute. And she said, well, we don't live here. We live at the end of this road at the very top of a mountain. So that's another, you know, four miles into the middle of nowhere in this little wooden cabin. Um, and you're thinking to yourself, mom and dad allowed me to do that. Well, they didn't know. Because, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just had an address. And so I ended up living with this lovely family, the Coles. And I lived there for a year. And what was their livelihood up in the mountains? Were they ranchers? Were they? I think they had moved there kind of to get away from city and the Bay Area and, you know, lived very remotely and, you know, worked in local business. And I remember the first days, like, okay, you know, you're going to school, sign up as a senior in high school. So the school was on an Indian reservation. It's the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation. So Hoopa High was the school, a small school. I mean, I think the senior class had 25, 30 oh, people in it. Weeny. And, you know, I showed up and they said, hey, you're German. Yeah. Well, so you play football. And I said, well, no, I play soccer. Wow, same thing. Joined the football team, right? And so they recruited me to the football team and, you know, I got to play, which was fun. Because, yeah. you know, it was only 25 people, so everyone gets to play. And that was a really great experience for a year living here. And it got me exposure to California. Came down to the Bay Area, visited San Francisco a couple of times. Saw Stanford and thought, wow, I, you know, this is great. Maybe I'll come back here one day, either go to college or work here. Right. And that was my first real exposure to the US. Amazing. Amazing. And then so you graduated and then went back to Germany, or did you go then to Wharton? No. So I, I went back to Germany. So graduated here and went back to Germany. And the German high school said, well, this is great, but you have to redo that year. Oh, God. So I had to redo 12th grade, which is different. Curriculum difference, right. all that. And then I graduated again from high school two years later. So German high school is 13 years. Okay. I graduated from high school. And I had applied to U.S. colleges and gotten into a, a couple. And um, was that a priority to come back to the U.S.? For, or did you apply to both to see where you got uh, in? So you know, I knew I wanted to study business and had applied to a couple of German schools, including a business school in Germany, a couple of schools in the U.S., and then I got accepted to Wharton, and Wharton is the undergrad business program. So I thought, well, this the is... The best on wonder, by oh, the way. Frank <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have that in common. All right, there you Wharton go. Undergrad. Let, let's put the plug in for Wharton. <laughs> and so with the choices I had, I thought Wharton is the place to go. And my parents said, hey, that's great, but you know, college in Germany is free, so if you want to go to Wharton, you better find a way to pay for it. 
and it wasn't cheap. So then I thought, okay, so I, I have the acceptance. Who would be interested in paying for my college other than my parents who said, you know, you go figure it out. So I wrote a letter to every German company in the US with, you know, more than 200 employees. So there's like 500 letters and I figured out, you know, basically the whoever the CEO, president, you know, person in charge. And I basically offered uh, that I'm accepted at Wharton. I'm going to study business. I'll come work for you if you pay my tuition. And there was a couple of folks who actually wrote back and oh. said, we're interested. So I met with a couple of folks. And one of the people who ultimately ended up sponsoring was the president of BASF. So that's the yeah. chemical company that, you know, we don't make a lot of the things you buy. We make a lot of them better. Right. Yep. And so Dieter Stein was the president of the U.S. entity at the time. And he came to Ludwigshafen. We met and he said, no, this is great. Do you come over? We'll pay for your tuition and you work for us every summer. And that's what I did. Good deal. Yeah. The ingenuity of actually taking that proactive step of finding the German companies, writing physical letters, right? Nobody does that anymore, right? But even back then, that would have been a pretty unique and novel step to take and a lot of work, but look how it paid off. It was a lot of work, a lot of research. But, you know, I mean, ultimately, you look at this and you kind of take the problem apart and say there has to be someone who's interested in sponsoring right. and or having access to someone who speaks German and English and has a business degree, right? right. And there is that person, right? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I'm doing is trying to pay that forward, right? And helping other Germans come here and maybe have access to opportunities that they couldn't figure out on their own. Fantastic. So you're now in Philadelphia, very different than sort of Northern California. And instead of living with a family, you're on your own. At this point, I assume your English is as good as it is today. It's, I think, pretty good. I'm, yeah. I still might've had a German accent. I also attended Wharton. We may have been close in overlap, but there weren't a lot of foreign students, or at least I don't remember a lot of foreign students when I was an undergrad. Were there more than I was aware of? And was there a number of people that you met that had sort of come from similar backgrounds or, or no? I think it depends on where you kind of fit into the school community, mm -hmm. right? So when I arrived, I had two big bags and I was living in Hill House, freshman dorm. Yeah. Right. And awesome. met, I mean, my roommate was Chinese American. There's another couple of students from abroad on the same floor. So it felt reasonably international. But then very quickly within the end of freshman year, everyone had kind of sorted into fraternity houses or right. to the quad or other dorms. And where I ended up living was Modern Language College House, which was a lot of foreigners because you got credit for speaking. A language. So it was one of those like, hey, live here and you get a credit for speaking German. I was like, well, I speak German. Well, what if I live on the French floor and you speak French, you get another credit. It's like, great, sign me up. <laughs> you know, yeah, right? I spoke French. And so, Did you? so you get credit and back to the whole idea of paying for college. Yes. I wanted to get out of there as quickly as I could. I wanted to learn, get my degree. But I basically figured out that if I get enough credits, I can graduate in three years instead of four. That saves me a lot of money. Yes. I still had to work for BASF during the summers, which was great. But obviously, everything other than tuition was still pretty expensive. You so. know, it's, as we've seen different ed tech things come through our offices here, we've talked quite a bit about higher education in the United States and compare and contrast it with Europe. And so the United States is a standard four-year program. Yep. I would argue that most of us in our senior year in college are probably not doing as much studying as we did in our first three years of college. And you contrast that to Europe where most higher education is a three-year program. And it's usually, as I recall, full calendar. You know, There's holidays, but it's not big summer vacations, big winter vacations. And so it begs the question, in light of how expensive it's become and how prohibitive it is for ordinary people to pay for a foreign and, and fund a four-year education, does it behoove us to consider as a culture 
a three-year program mm. more akin to sort of the European higher education or not. And so I don't have an answer there other than we've seen a number of startups that are trying to yeah. nibble at that. I mean, it's interesting, the difference growing up in Germany, right? And, and most of my friends that I went to high school with in Germany ended up studying Staying. in Germany. And what happens in Germany is you have 13 years of high school, so you have a little bit more time and you're a little older. And once you start going to university, you go to university for a very specific degree. I'm You're studying there. law. I'm studying physics. I'm, yep. I'm becoming a mathematician. I'm studying, you know, economics or or business. Mm -hmm. And so your track is set from day one. Whereas in the U.S., you go to college and universities encourages and say, you know, the first year go explore. It's, it's, it's a lot of it is general ed, right? Kind of get everyone up to the same level in the math and social sciences and history and English and you know. And so when I went to Penn, you know, obviously you, you went through it. So you have the Wharton classes, which are business, and then you have the Penn classes, which are kind of general ed. And I basically went to professors and said, well, look, I already did this in high school, so can I? Get out of this Move because over. I'm really here to focus on finance and accounting and management and all right. the Wharton classes. That's what I wanted to do. So I didn't do the Penn classes because I had, you, you know, need to. You had already I, taken I had kind of taken them, at yeah. least under the German umbrella. So I think that's one of the differences in the systems, right? Is there's a lot more focus on the actual, here's what I want to study, right? right? And that's what I use university or college for versus my general education I finish in high school. Yep. Makes tons of sense. You know, somewhere in there, and I don't know if it was post Penn or pre Penn, you served in the German military. Yeah, that was before Penn. So I had, was, I had okay. applied to university or colleges in the US and I gotten in. And then the German government kind of sent me a letter saying, not so fast. Is it mandatory? <laughs> it's it, mandatory. It is, is it still mandatory? It, it was at the time, not okay. anymore. So it was a year-long service obligation in the German military draft, effectively. Yeah. And so I deferred Wharton. So Penn was great. They said, sure, come back next year. Yeah. And the German military was good in that I, because I spoke English and French, mm. I got a really nice job in the defense ministry, basically supporting a colonel who was running one of the battalions who didn't speak English, but he needed someone to translate mm. when he got together with other NATO Leaders, so you know the French and the English and the Americans, and so as someone who spoke you know reasonably good English at the time, that was my job, which got me out of doing all the grunt work that you normally do when you're drafted. Where were you stationed? Were you in Bonn in, in Bonn. at Capital at the time? And did you travel then accordingly? Yeah, I'm in Paris, Brussels, yeah. you know, lots of travel around Germany. So that was a good, great experience, and you know, a great experience because it really gets you to see and appreciate another side of society, yeah. right? Because Everyone is drafted, right? People who didn't graduate high school, people who didn't have the same background. And so, you know, meeting and interacting with those folks, I, I think is great. And that was, Absolutely. that was a formative experience for me. I'm sure. You know, I don't know if you've read the Startup Nation, which is a book that discusses, you know, the mandatory IDF service in Israel yeah. and, you know, putting 18, 19 year olds in charge of, you know, $50 million pieces of equipment and, you know, hundreds of lives does cause a maturation. And, and I'm convinced that it also does exactly what you said, which is it exposes you to sort of the wider swath of the community, which opens your eyes that much sooner and that much more sort of vividly to different ways of thinking, different ways of approaching problems, different types of challenges. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for being exposed to things that you otherwise wouldn't be exposed to. Exactly. Um, exactly right. Yeah. So now you finish Wharton and I assume you're then working for BASF for some period of time. I thought so too. And I went back and the head of HR at BASF at the time, I said, you know, I'm here, I'm ready, ready to go. work for you guys. Right. And he said, you know, here's a job offer. 
but if I were you, I would look more broadly. And he was just a genuinely a good guy. Yeah. And he said, look, you, you know, you've worked here every summer and there was a piece of software I'd built for them that they were happy with. They felt that they had gotten enough value out of me that he was very genuine and said, you know, generally we don't recruit finance and Wharton grads. We look for chemical engineers for our entry program. It's okay. a different starting career, mm-hmm. right? Going into a company like that. So go look at what everyone else who comes out of Wharton looks at. And at that point in time, it was, you know, finance, investment banking in New York or consulting somewhere else. Yeah. Right? Those and were you the choose the consulting route. And I chose the consulting route. Exactly. I interviewed with a bunch of investment banks. I had two offers to go to New York and thought, you know, 90 hours a week of spreadsheet work or 90 hours a week of spreadsheet work and consulting. <laughs> I went consulting. And really one of the reasons was that the company I then joined, Mercer Management Consulting, had an offer in San Francisco, right? Ah. And I wanted to come back You wanted here. to come back to the Bay yeah, Area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I'm thinking back to my time at Penn, and um, yes, most of my friends and acquaintances, A, ended up in New York, Yep. B, ended up in finance or investment banking. And I did the same thing. I interviewed for... There wasn't really the same hedge fund community at the time, but there were some investment funds, but a lot of my peers went into investment banking and I had the same reaction, which was, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think it's a great track, right? It's For, absolutely. But, but you have Amazing to be into learning. it and you have, you to, have be, to be, it, you know, and I wanted more exposure to different things. And I thought consulting is great, you know, you, yes. different project, different focus, different team every six months, mm-hmm. right? But as I recall, there weren't a lot of opportunities to come to the West Coast from Wharton right. at the time. I suspect there's many more now. So that was a novelty. And management consulting, I'm a few years older than you, management consulting was on the list, but it was a much more selective route to go than investment banking or corporate finance. Yeah, it was it was smaller. I think the majority, and this is just the school, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Wharton has a fantastic finance program. It's the feeder school for all the investment banks, and that's who was recruiting on campus, right? Mm -hmm. And then, yes, you'd have the consulting firms kind of mixed in, right? And you'd have to seek them out, and that's what I did. So you graduated from Wharton, and did you come right to the Bay Area then? Yeah. Yeah. This was 96, so came to the Bay Area, and worked in consulting for Mercer for about three years. And what type of projects did you work on? Finance projects. <laughs> Finance. <laughs> right. So, well, so the first project was super interesting. Worked with a colleague of mine, Jonathan, and we built this profit model for Amtrak. Basically, Amtrak had hired the consulting firm to figure out which routes in the U.S. are profitable, which ones are losing money, and how much, and how do we turn them into profitable routes. And I was like, wow, this is the train system for America, at least the passenger rail system, right? And I get to dig into the profitability of every single train route. So that was super fascinating. And uh, we delivered that. And then very quickly got into banking projects, right? So obviously West Coast, you had the two big banks in San Francisco, Wells Fargo, Bank of America did work for them, insurance companies. And so very quickly into finance and banking. But as a consultant working... You know, within project teams that were focused on, you know, go to market strategy and product design and analytics. And, and this was just when people were starting to use data in a more meaningful way to understand their customers. So, a lot of customer segmentation work, targeting work. How much did you get to influence the industries in which you were staffed on these projects? In other words, you know, banking, and we're going to talk about real estate and insurance, has kind of been really where you've spent a significant amount of your career. Was that because you were staffed on those early projects and then became sort of increasingly a domain expert, or was that an area of interest for you initially? 
I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, finance and banking, or or the general notion of you know how does banking work, how do loan and deposit products work, and one of the hardest courses for me at Wharton was banking finance. I loved it, and I thought yeah, that was so. So I was already into that and interested in mm-hmm. it, and I think that natural inclination led to the projects that I was working on. And you know, the honest answer: How much do you influence an industry? Not one bit, right? right? I mean, you can provide advice and insight and interesting analysis, but at the end of the day, moving an industry or moving even a company in an industry as old and as stodgy as banking takes a long time and a lot more than a twenty-three-year-old consultant. <laughs> but it was the industry where you were interested in learning more, yeah, as opposed absolutely. to you know railroads and transportation. Right, right, right. No, it's very quickly yeah. into yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so then. In 99, I left Mercer actually with a couple of colleagues who were also there, and we started an online insurance company. And that was basically the realization, you know, we were on the outside trying to give advice to, you know, big insurance companies on how to target customers or how to build better products and how to improve customer service. But it just takes a really long time to change these companies, right? Was there a vertical of insurance? Will you tell us a little bit more about that? Story? Yeah, sure. So the company was called eCoverage, and it was focused on initially auto insurance, auto insurance, and eventually homeowners insurance. But really, the focus was, you know, can we build an insurance underwriting engine online where you can come to a website, enter your personal information, and get a quote and be underwritten and bound and covered on the same day, you know, within an hour or so. And that at the time, as pedestrian as that sounds today, at the time that was revolutionary. Because you couldn't. You know, you had to go see an agent, you had to go fill in a bunch of paper forms, maybe be on the phone, and it would take days weeks. and or weeks before you actually had your coverage. Yes. Right? Interestingly in the insure tech world, that's still a conundrum that's being wrestled <laughs> with. Right. Right, I, right, right. Was an early investor in hippo home insurance and the concept of qualifying for home insurance immediately because there's a lot of disparate information out there that can be retrieved quickly makes a ton of sense and yet that industry is still struggling with instantaneous quotes and underwriting. Back in 99 when we started the single biggest challenge was not really building the tech Right, because you right. you're ingesting a form and data, and you're making a decision. The single biggest challenge was convincing people that this is real because they didn't believe that an online business could provide something as important as insurance, right? Where, where you pay premiums and you hope that there's someone there when you have an accident or when your roof gets blown off on your home, right? So you need that belief right. that there's well, a company on the other side. And to validate, it takes time, right? To right. validate your underwriting policies, it takes time, which, you know, until that time passes, at least the folks that are actually underwriting are going to be reticent or slow to move. Before we get into what happened to the startup, you know, going from a comfortable salaried job at a very stable consulting firm to no salary, presumably, an unstructured and highly risky venture is a big step for any entrepreneur. And one of the themes of this podcast is to try to understand what motivates an entrepreneur, what gives you the courage to take that risk. Help us get into your head at that time. What was the impetus for starting the company? What were some of the pros and cons that you were wrestling with? What ultimately got you comfortable I mean, the simple answer is, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, if you think about it, and especially at that point, right, 26 years old, no kids, no family, no obligations, sure, you take a pay cut, right? What's the worst that can happen? You go and get another job. You go get another job, right? And I think that's actually the answer, no matter when you do it, right? The downside is limited, right? Now, you know, obviously... It gets bigger and it gets, you know. And you have a mortgage. And yeah, of course. You have to think about it a little longer, right? But I think the upside is you're in control of your own destiny, right? 
I'm always struck by people who say, well, I'm not willing to leave this safe job that I have in this big company. And like, you know, there are people in your big company who make decisions about you and the division you're in and the job you have Absolutely. that you've never met. Yep. Right? And they don't care about you. And they don't care about you. So mm-hmm. I'd much rather be in charge of my own destiny. And in the end, the company, we shut it down. As part of all the other companies that shut down, we sold the assets. This is around 2000. This is in 2000, 2001, yeah. right? We sold the assets to an insurance company. So, you know, it's kind of not a crash landing, but, you know, a landing. And we all went on and did other things. And if I look back at that founding team, three of them are CEOs of successful companies. Mm. Everyone has done well, right? Everyone landed somewhere else and has built new things since then. So it was a great experience, right? There's a lot of learning. Give us some of the highlights. What are some of the key learnings that you sort of look back and elicit from that? Well, I mean, I think one of the learnings is, you know, the Michael Tyson who said, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So this notion of (laughs) you think you have a plan and you think things are going to work a certain way, but they don't. And then really what matters is what do you do next? How do you react? How do you figure out? How do you respond and recover? And what's really important is who do you have around you, right? Who's the team that can pull together, right? And support each other and buy in and, you know, figure out what the next step is. That's absolutely critical. You know, one of the things we talk about when we're evaluating first-time entrepreneurs is on the one hand, they're looking at these industry opportunities with a fresh eye. They're not tainted by a lot of what is endemic in these industries. On the other hand, they also are looking at it with a fresh eye without the experience of having worked in those industries. And, you know, if you look back at that opportunity, were there things that you learned during the course of the startup's life or even thereafter about the opportunity you were pursuing that in hindsight you would have said, you know, no, or we would have done it differently or holy smokes, we were exactly right. In other words, were there things that you've learned about insurance, underwriting, qualifying underwritings that give you either hope or despair about an opportunity that still exists there? Yeah. I mean, the point you're making is interesting. This famous saying goes along the lines of, you know, reasonable people adapt themselves to their circumstances. Mm -hmm. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable person. So there is this benefit of coming into an industry, right, and with fresh set eyes and some amount of unreasonableness to say, well, why the hell does it take so long? You know, why would it be this complex? And challenge those assumptions. And so I think that's one of the big values that entrepreneurs bring, right? And the classic story is this, hey, I've seen this problem upfront and close and personal and it bugged me and it bugged all my friends and it bugged my parents and now I'm going to go solve it, right? And so that energy and enthusiasm and that mission is super important. I think one of the things we learned and I'm learning it now, you know, with uh, Onify is there's also real value in having folks who are deeply experienced in the industry to be not the voice of reason, but the voice of experience And ideally, you can push those people and they can push back. And where the push and pull happens is, okay, this makes sense, but you can't do it this way because it's illegal. Like, if you do this, you will get sued, go to prison. Okay, not good. Here are other reasons why things haven't happened or haven't worked. And it's because of technology or it's because of convention or it's because, you know, the, well, we've always done it this way. And those are the things you got to break through, right? And so that's what we learned with e-coverage at the time as well. Why do you need to see someone's ID? Like, let's really challenge that, right? Why can't you bind them and then have them send in a copy or, you know, visit them a couple of days later? And it's little things where, you know, you push someone who's been in the industry for a long time and they don't really give you a good reason other than it's always been. And then you know you can challenge it. And then you know you can challenge it. You know, my dad and I used to tinker with cars growing up and he always said to me, 
you, know, you can't fix it if you don't know how it's made or how it right. works. Right. And I think that's exactly right. That you can't come up with a solution for a problem until you truly understand why that problem exists. And we see it over and over again. And I look at businesses like Uber that challenge the convention of you know, medallioning a taxi cab or the insecurity with Airbnb of renting out a room to a stranger. I had a conversation last night with a friend of mine. We were talking about trust and we were both acknowledging that the vast majority of humans are trustworthy. Vast, vast, vast majority. It's the small percentage that sort of bring in insecurity to trust. And he made a comment, which was, you know, eBay was basically founded on trust. I mean, if you think about eBay's business, billions of dollars gets transacted before products are exchanged amongst people that don't know one another. And yet it works really well. And the vast majority of the time, the product gets shipped when the money gets delivered. And if it doesn't get shipped, most of the time the money gets returned. And so there is something to be said about challenging these conventions, understanding how they work, and then identifying where there's opportunities to do better. And in insurance, so ultimately you went through and you had a soft landing. It was an amazing educational experience for you guys. Obviously, that you and your colleagues have all gone on to do great things. What happened next? Why didn't you stay in insurance? Or did you stay in insurance? I didn't stay in insurance. I, I was recruited back into a consulting type role, actually, with Fair Isaac or FICO. Mm-hmm. Right. This was a former colleague from Mercer who called and said, I'm building this team. Do you want to come join? Really focused around how do you optimize financial decisions using data. Mm-hmm. That was the core premise, right? So consumer segmentation, consumer targeting, underwriting, pricing. And FICO had a number of tools, including the credit score and a mm-hmm. ton of information on consumers and software components that needed to be put together for specific applications in the financial services vertical. And that's the team that I ended up joining and you know, spent the next four years building and you know, helping build a business called Enterprise Decision Management, which is really all focused around how do you solve these highly frequent but somewhat small decisions around consumers, right? Hmm. So what's the limit on your credit card and how do I change it? And what's the price and the interest rate and the fees and the rewards program or the premium on an insurance policy, right? Or the deposit rate, et cetera. So all of these micro decisions that ultimately all end up with this financial outcome in a portfolio or a business line. And that was really a ton of fun building that business, right? The pitch to the industry was how do you use your customer data, your insights to become smarter and more profitable through segmentation, targeting, pricing, underwriting, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, we did that at Mercer. We did it at eCoverage. We did it again at Fair Isaac or FICO. Right. And so that's a common theme, yeah. right, around my career is I love data. I love getting my hands on data and then figuring out, you know, where are the edge cases or where are the opportunities to get smarter or more granular or more refined. And that was what I spent four years doing with FICO. Great. And then what happened next? Why did you leave FICO? So I left FICO because I had this great idea on starting a business. So and I got the entrepreneurial again. Uh, yes. And I wanted to start this business called personal analytics. And I thought it was a great idea. It was basically the idea was to ingest consumers' financial data and help them make smarter decisions. You know, what are the types of products they should buy? What are the types of credit cards, loans, insurance, financial financial products. Right. The idea was really similar to what Mint ended up doing. I had written the business plan, I incorporated the business, started looking for funding. And then my wife said, Oh, good news, we're pregnant. Hmm? And so I needed an income. And health insurance. <laughs> and so now you're back to, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Well, you actually need some security. <laughs> you don't have doctors. <laughs> exactly. And then at that point, I got a call from a good friend of mine 
who knew David Hornick. We just funded this company called Nomis. They're looking for a head of sales and marketing. It's a complicated business. They're using a ton of data to make pricing decisions for banks and you know financial services companies. Are you interested? And you had been consulting with the financial these customers. So there's right, sort right. of logic. So I knew that space, right? Yeah. And that was a good fit for me. And uh, so I joined the two co-founders early on. I think I was employee number eight. Great. As what was called head of sales and marketing, I was really the sales guy. Right. right. So yeah. <laughs> and and Frank, so before we get into Nomis, this was the second time you thought of being an entrepreneur. Right. And why? Like, what motivated you to do it? Was it money, or was it being independent, or was it proving you could do something new? It was actually a much more personal experience, which was my parents. As I said earlier, they're musicians, and I watched them make financial decisions that were always very, very prudent, very careful, but not necessarily the right decisions, Hmm. right? In the sense of, like, they kept all their money in a savings account. Because they didn't know what to do. And when I dug into this, I realized that if in the US, for example, there's a ton of advice for folks who have money to invest, right? Once you have a certain balance in a certain amount of assets, lots of financial advisors come out. Calling you. you and exactly. If you don't have that, there's very little. There are advice columns and there's lots of stuff you can find online, but there really weren't, at least this is true 15, 20 years ago, right? That there weren't any systems out there, there weren't any websites that truly provided personalized and adequate and data-driven financial advice. And so that was the idea behind personal analytics was let me ingest your transactional data from your bank statements and bank accounts and you know all of that and provide advice and or product recommendations that help you solve the problems that you're looking to solve whether that's saving for retirement or saving for college or buying a car or, you know saving for a down payment for a home whatever it is right mm-hmm. let me give you automated and you know scalable advice that doesn't require a financial advisor to sit down with you because you're not at that stage right, right? not at that uh, level. as a consumer the reason that struck me as a problem is that you know, fifty percent of Americans don't have the assets that warrant a financial advisor. It's, like it's higher than that, yeah. right? And I saw it with my parents in Germany, and so that was the motivation. So it wasn't about you know making money; it was about solving a problem that I saw up close and personal. And you were already in the states; you had been educated in the states. But did you ever think of doing it in Germany or doing it in Europe? Was that ever something that you considered? No, no, no. I, and was that? Because this was a more receptive market, or you now were comfortable here, or because I'd moved to the US and I'd been here and I know this market, yeah. right? This is the comfort zone. Yeah. I never really had the intention or the idea to say, let's go back to Germany and do this. I mean, there's a number of applications, you know, for even the business now in other markets, including Germany, but it was never front and center. Yeah, interesting. Does money motivate you? Yeah. I mean, I think money and success in broadly defined and money is yeah. a way of keeping score, right? And Absolutely. kind of it's a report card. rewarding and, you know, returning those rewards to the folks around you. So that is important. Yeah. But it's not the primary motivator. Great. And so you joined Nomis and joined in a sales role. Right. But you've progressed from there. And we share a little bit about that progression and sort of how the different roles and responsibilities sort of came your way and sure. what was attractive to you, what wasn't. So, I mean, this was a startup, right? So early on, I did sales and marketing and mm-hmm. I built that up. And that worked. We very rapidly grew into, you know, tens of millions of dollars in sales and the business started to take off. I took over product management for about a year. 
And then I went to the UK, actually to London, to run the European business there. One of the co-founders was in London okay. and he retired. So I went over to basically take over his job. How did you like London? Was that? I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was great. I mean, just a fantastic and fascinating city and, yeah. you know, all the benefits of living in a large metropolis, culture, museums, music. I mean, our office was right in Covent Garden, right? So being able to go mm. to the opera that night and it's just fantastic. Magical city. It truly was. However, that was 2008. And what ended up happening GFC. was that the GFC financial crisis caused a lot of our customers to really disappear. I yeah. mean, we had sold into you know Washington Mutual and Wachovia and Halifax Bank of Scotland and Chrysler Finance and a number of these brands that literally went belly up you know, within Moments. a 12-month period. Yeah, amazing. So the business went from something like 20 million to about 4 million in revenue within a 18 months period. Mm. And so this was a battlefield promotion. You know, I was living in the UK, I was running sales, marketing, the European business, and the board called me and said, do you want to take over as CEO? And you know, your first order of business is going to be to right-size the company for what will be a pretty severe downturn. And so that was kind of act number one as CEO of the company. And then, you know, rebuilding it over the next couple of years. You know, it's interesting. We talk quite a bit about the skill sets that are required for that type of event, the contraction event, the battlefield <clears throat> CEO versus the skills that are required for growth. You've been able to deal with both. Do you think there are different skill sets? Yes and no. I think there is a core skill set that is important in both scenarios, which is the ability to make decisions quickly and firmly. So this notion of decisiveness mm -hmm. right, is incredibly important when you have to shrink a business, cut cost, get out of markets or products that aren't performing. Right, Making those decisions and moving on and not looking back is yep. important. I think that's equally important in a growth scenario, Right, is being Completely decisive, agree. acting fast and moving on. Right, Completely. We like to say it is okay to make a quick decision and be wrong 49% of the time, you'll never succeed if you don't make decisions. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I think that's a core skill set that you need in both scenarios. I think the attitude that is much more important in the downside scenario is just the resilience. The notion of just grinding it out and saying, hey, there will be a better day. There'll be another door that opens. Let's make the right calls. Let's pull together the team, right? Let's focus on why we're here. And often that's a broader vision. So I'm not saying that vision isn't as important mm -hmm. in a downside scenario. It's equally important. But the notion of you know sticking with it is incredibly important. Yeah. And that tends to get lost in the boom times, right? Or in the times where you know money is easy, growth is easy, and you know you can solve for a lot of problems with growth and a tailwind. And when that tailwind isn't there, you just gotta grind it out and solve well, those problems. When I interview people, a thing I look for is that resilience and it can manifest itself by their career path, right? It, you know, if you're changing jobs every couple of years, it may be that you're still building the same skill set, but more likely is you're having stops and starts. And so there's not that perseverance, there's not that continuity, as opposed to, you know, backing or interviewing or hiring people that have been, you know, with a company for a long period of time and have sort of seen the cycles and have been forced to stick with it until that next door opens. And then having the awareness to identify when that next door opens, which yep. is another yep. skill, is to sort of have that awareness. 
So you went through this downsizing and repositioning, and then the business was able to get back on track. What were the catalysts for that? When did you start changing the mindset from contraction to growth? Yeah. So the core idea behind the business was always sound and still is, right? This notion of, hey, we're using data and math to figure out pricing in financial services where banks and lenders have millions of price points and it's a hard math problem and you got to solve it, right? And so applying data science and machine learning and optimization technology and software to that problem was always the right way to go. The challenge short term after the financial crisis was the priorities for banks shifted. So they were focused on survival, they were focused right. on fixing the balance sheet, on passing their stress tests and a whole host of other things, right? Beyond better Optimizing living through math, them. right? And I think one of the key pieces was we always focused on, hey, this is a good idea. The timing is difficult. So let's work through when can we reaccelerate? You know, let's get the business in shape. Let's figure out how to be efficient, how to be profitable, quite frankly, for that time period. And we did that. And then kind of three years in, 2014, 15, the business started coming back and we figured out how to grow and how to reposition the product, lower the entry price, make it more efficient. The whole mm -hmm. move to the cloud helped with that, right? We changed the economics around the price point and the support levels required. And that allowed us to regrow the business, right? And go back. And we had customers who came back who bought and subscribed to the solution before the credit crisis and then came back afterwards. And that was really satisfying. Yeah, to I bet that was. Okay, and so we're going to get now to the end of your time at Nomis and the launch of Onify. Talk us through the inception of Onify. And you know, when I think of Onify, I think of it as solving this first home buyer's challenge, facilitating that first home buy in a way that hasn't been facilitated in the past. Right. right. So this actually goes back a, a number of years to when I bought my first home in San Francisco. It was a condo at the time, two thousand three. And I didn't have enough money for the down payment. You know, I had gotten the 80% mortgage and then I got another 10% second mortgage, but I still needed 10% down and I was like $30,000 short. And at the time, I called my parents and they said, Don't worry about it. We'll help you. You know, where do we wire the money? So they wired the money and I had and my down payment. And not everybody has that parent. And not everyone has that trusting parent. parent. Right. And it turns out that technically, when you do that, you have to make sure that that's a gift, right? Now, I paid my parents back eventually, and I think a lot of people do. But when you do that, right, you're actually breaking banking laws in the US. Interesting. Right? <laughs> this is not a good thing to do. Now, most people do it anyway, right? And so it kind of stuck with me, you know, well, here I am, I have a good career, I have good income, I'm buying, you know, not a million dollar mansion on top of the hill, I'm buying a condo. I should be able to do that, yeah. right? And the fact that I couldn't kind of stuck with me. And so fast forward a number of years, you know, working at Nomis and then bumping into effectively our customers, right, who are mortgage lenders. So we were building the pricing engines for a number of these big mortgage lenders. And I got to meet the folks who run the mortgage portfolios at big brands like SoFi and Wells Fargo and Quicken and other places. And we started talking about this problem of why is it that the first time homebuyer is struggling so much? And that was really the impetus for Onify was is okay, now I remember I struggled with this. And you know, if you bring it up to people who are a little older, they say, Well, yeah, I'm helping my kids, right? And when you bring it up to folks who are a little younger, they say, Yeah, I'm struggling with it. And then when you look at the data, what we found was that 50% of first time homebuyers borrow money or get support, right, as a gift or a loan or whatever it is from their parents and their family. 50%. That's right? huge. So we dug huge into number. this and did some research and some math. And if you just did that, if you were that bank of mom and dad, 
you would have the seventh largest mortgage lender in the country. That's a big opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Maybe take a step back and you know, sort of how many new home purchases are first-time home buyers, and what's the scope of new home buys? Yeah. So depending on the year, you know, there's five and a half million new homes bought per year, you know, or, in the United or States. new homes and, and existing homes bought every year. So out of those, about 1.2 million, 1.1 million a year are first-time home buyers. Wow. So folks who, you know, they're renters, and the classic profile is someone in their late 20s, maybe early 30s. You know, it's usually a couple. They might have just gotten together. Maybe they're married. Maybe they're not. Maybe they have, you know, kids. Baby, maybe, maybe they not. don't. But it's kind of that age category. Yep. And it's right now. It's the bulge of the millennial generation is moving through that mm. uh, first-time home buyer experience. That's the classic profile. And you know, it's a starter home if you're outside of major metro areas, right? So three, four, five hundred thousand dollars. It's a condo. It's a townhouse. And it, depending on where you are, it can be less than that, right? Yep. That's usually the classic first home purchase. So that's a large opportunity. Right? That's a lot of people, a lot of asset volume, a lot of purchases, but it's getting harder and harder. So the average age of the first time home buyer has gone up every single year. Hmm. It's now 34. Interesting. Um, it wasn't 10 years ago, just as like a frame of reference. 29, 30, oh, wow. right? So, so it's significant increase. And the average first time home buyer saves for a little over four years for the down payment. And, right. and if we're talking about a four hundred thousand dollar average price point, we're talking about eighty thousand dollars. If you if, if you want to get your standard eighty yeah. percent LTV mortgage, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So you got to have eighty thousand dollars down, and then you got to afford the payment, right? right? So my co-founders and I, Ben and Chris, we're looking at this problem. And said, there has to be a better solution to helping the first-time home buyer, right? You can't be a renter forever and be expected to save, and then eventually come up with that twenty percent or even ten percent. And the mortgage industry doesn't really solve for this problem programmatically. There are, you know, some products out there that get you a little lower down payment, but they're hard to find. They don't always work. They have limitations and constraints and all that. So we said, let's rethink the challenge and the solution from the ground up. And what we built and what we're building now is really an equity-based approach to home ownership rather than a debt-based approach. Mm-hmm. So we challenged this notion of why do you need to borrow money to buy 100% of your home? Why can't you buy a part of your home and still live in it? Mm-hmm. Right? As a renter, you own none of your home. And all the rent that you pay goes to the landlord. Right? You don't really have a benefit in terms of equity or accumulation. Right? It's money out the door. Yep. As a home buyer, if you have a mortgage, you have this huge debt burden and you're paying interest on it and you're paying off that equity over 30 years, right? But there's this hurdle, mm-hmm. the down payment hurdle, and the monthly payment is high. And you know, and now we're sitting on highest interest rates in 20 years. Right. So it's gotten even harder. So what we challenged ourselves is is there a different approach here? Can we rethink the home? Financing and the way the capital flows into the market and solves this problem. And what we've built is this equity-based approach. And so what we're doing is we're telling the first-time home buyer, you can buy a home. We're going to break it into 10,000 bricks, metaphorically. Yep. Right. And on day one, you buy 200 bricks. We buy the other 9,800. And every month over the next five years, you make a fixed payment. We tell you exactly what your payment is for the next 60 months. So you're and locked in for 60 months. You're locked in as for 60 a months. Renter. We call him an Oni, Oni because you're more than a renter, but you also don't have a mortgage. Mm-hmm. So you are an occupant of the home that you buy. And on day one, you own 2% of those bricks. 
And at the end of five years, you own 10%. So we put you on a path where every month you buy 13, 14, 15 bricks. And, you know, there's a, a valuation that goes on behind the scenes that calculates exactly how many bricks you can buy for your fixed payment. And let's talk about that a little bit. The, sure. you know, what influences that monthly cost? So the best way to think about it is back to there's two piles of bricks in every home, right? The bricks that you have bought and the bricks that you haven't bought. And you're renting the bricks you haven't bought. Right. So you're paying market rent on that pile of bricks that you haven't bought. Yep. And every month buying a number of bricks. Of those bricks. And how much those bricks cost you is dependent on home prices overall. So if your home appreciates, your fixed monthly payment buys a slightly smaller number of bricks. Right. Over time, if home prices go down, your payment actually buys more bricks. And looking back at your career in taking disparate data sets and synthesizing them to come up with insights, you're using that information and your acumen with that information to help assess that pricing. Correct. Exactly. So, what we can do is because we're using an equity based approach, we're basically assembling investors to buy a portion of your home. And you, as the customer, buy the other portion. And so a big part of making that math work is having a good understanding of what is the value of the home and how would that value appreciate or depreciate you know, over time? How will that value act? And can we price for the risk, the appreciation or the depreciation downside appropriately such that there is ultimately a fair trade on both sides? And so the mission we've set ourselves is fair terms for the homeowner and attractive return for the investor. right? Yep. That's the balancing act, and that's where the math and the data comes into play. And what we can do now, and this is one of the reasons why we can do this today versus maybe 10 years ago or five years ago, is we have a lot of data on consumers. right? Mm-hmm. Their creditworthiness, their income, their income potential. What's the risk of bringing someone into this equation? Yep. right? We can underwrite that. So we've built software around that, and we ingest you know, lots and lots of data on the consumer. And we can do the same thing on the home. Because unlike a mortgage lender, we actually care how much your home appreciates. Right? A mortgage lender doesn't, as long as they get paid back. Right. We care about the equity value. The equity value. Yeah. So, and again, we have thousands of pieces of data on each individual home that we can analyze, and we can go back historically and say, here's how single-family homes with three bedrooms and one bath on a quarter-acre lot in the zip code have performed historically. Right, and therefore, here's how we think they're going to perform going forward. And there has been over the last couple of years some businesses that have exited that e-valuation, e-pricing, e-purchasing business. How do you juxtapose what you're doing against those businesses that have been exiting? Yeah, I think the iBuyer or Power Buyer I-buyer. business, right? Yeah. I think is a great one when home prices go up year over year. Right, if you have a consistent six, seven, eight percent home price appreciation. And sometimes twelve and fifteen percent, like we've seen in the last two three years, then it works well. You know, buying something, holding it for six months and selling it, or buying something, fixing it up and selling it six months later is a pretty safe bet. That does not work when home prices are flat or go down, mm-hmm. right? And so, where our business model is very different from that is twofold. One, our hold period is five years. Mm-hmm. Right? So, the customer commits to a five year occupancy. And it is very, very hard to find a five year hold period anywhere in the US where you don't see home price appreciation over that horizon. So, just holding the home for longer makes that easier. And then, two, we don't ever have an empty home because mm-hmm. we buy it with the customer. So, the customer chooses the home and right. we buy it for that customer. Right. So, on day one, there's an occupant in the home. 
And five years down the line, there's still an occupant yep. in the home. So there's no vacancy. There's never a moment where we're not getting the rental income. dormant, right? Correct. So yes. there's cash flow and there's appreciation. And between those two components, the likelihood of losing money from an investor perspective, it's not zero, but it's very, very low. Right. Right? And I would add a third attribute, which is you're also spending the energy, you're investing in the risk assessment of the actual tenant itself. So you right. have the tenant occupying and the cash flow, the lack of dormancy, you have the longer term hold period, and you have sort of a vetted tenant. And we don't like to call them tenant. We have a customer, right, an ONI, who actually has a real incentive of acting like an owner. Yep. I mean, if you think about it, this is just like a startup giving equity to its employees. Yep. Right. You're participating in the growth of the company, the value creation in the company, your incentives are aligned, and you're an owner, even yeah. though you're a fractional owner, right? Yep. But if you think about it, and this is part of where software and you know the app can help us, we can show the customer, look, here are all the bricks you're owning. You're owning half the kitchen today, right? Mm-hmm. In a year, you're going to own all of the kitchen. That is yours, right? Those bricks belong to you. They're tokens. You have them in your wallet. We haven't talked about the blockchain, but we can visualize the value in your home back to you, mm-hmm. and that changes your behavior. Yeah. We can also do, you know, really neat things like clean your gutters and send us a video of you cleaning your gutters, and we will send you an extra brick or two. Or watch this video on how to drain your water tank, right? Which you should do once a year, right? This. Classic homeowner behavior, yeah. tenants don't drain the water yes. tank, right? Warren Buffett said no one pays to wash the rental car. But if you're an owner, even a fractional owner, you have that incentive. Mm-hmm. And if we can support that incentive by saying, look, we're actually going to send you an extra couple of bricks when you do those things, right? That creates the behavior we want that ultimately helps build and preserve the asset value. And that's to the benefit of the customer and to us or the investor. Absolutely. You now have customers. You now have right. ONIs. How do you think about customer acquisition. Is there a unique approach that you have to take because of the profile of these first-time home buyers? Or talk to us a little bit about that go-to-market. Sure. So a home purchase is a very, very important and I think long consideration, right? No one wakes up and says, I saw something online, I'm going to buy a house today. <laughs> right? The impulse uh, purchase The impulse home. purchase doesn't really <laughs> exist. So we are firm believers the person and the key to this decision is really the real estate agent, right? Someone who works with first-time home buyers, who specializes in the handholding and that process. And it's not necessarily the agent with the biggest portfolio, right? Because they tend to work with second and third-time buyers mm-hmm. and folks who maybe buy the more expensive homes. But it's really the agents who are focused on that first-time buyer, right? And working with those agents is our acquisition strategy and our partnership strategy in the market. So we try to find them. We try to educate them about our product. We have an accreditation process that we've built around classes and quizzes. And, you know, ultimately, when you're an accredited agent, you get marketing materials and support from Onify to help you turn your renters or your first time home buyers who may not be ready for the mortgage into buyers. Yep. right? And so we believe that that's the right go-to-market strategy. And ultimately, I think the most powerful advocate for that first-time home buyer is his or her agent. Yeah, absolutely. And for those that are listening, what markets in the near term, let's call the next 12, 24 months, can they enjoy the service? <laughs> so we're live in North Carolina. In, we started in Raleigh. Uh, other markets in North Carolina are coming soon in, you know, in 2023. We're looking at Florida and Texas as the next two big markets, tail end of 23 into 24. 
So come to ownify.com and check out where we are live and, you know, happy to work with you. Fantastic. I'm going to ask you one more question. So the clock now spins forward three to five years. How do you define success for Onify? So we have a long-term mission of helping 100,000 first-time home buyers. Are we going to be there in three to five years? I mean, that'd be fantastic. That'd be nice. Yes. We would um, like that. We'd love that little. Right. So that is a long-term goal, right? Is helping the first-time home buyer and really moving the needle. I think beyond that, we would love to be able to truly change the perception of what it means to own a home and what it means to buy your first home and do two things as part of that. One, accelerate the path, make it easier for the home buyer, but also create opportunities for investors to participate in the asset class, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think back to the concept of bricks, a brick is a token, is a fraction, right? A blockchain token that you can invest in. And so the other benefit we're looking to create is the ability for retail investors to participate in the asset class, Mm -hmm. right? In a way where it has liquidity, it has the appreciation, it has the fixed income potential. So if you fast forward five years, I'd say helping the first time home buyers and creating healthy returns for retail investors in this asset class that is hard to access today, that would be my definition of success. That's fantastic. Frank, it is so fun to hear about this. We are extremely excited about what you're doing. We think it's incredibly novel. And it's once again, one of these businesses that will do well and will do good. Allowing these first-time home buyers to get their homes maybe lower that average age and simplify their process is just a sort of a great vision. So thank you for starting and running Onify. Thank you guys for all the support, right? You've been a rock star team, not just here, but in the prior business. So thank you to you, buddy, and David and Eric and the rest of the team. It's you a know, total privilege. Awesome partners. Total privilege. This has been The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. I'm Buddy Arnheim, and I look forward to our next conversation.